Hey, so here we are, we're in Luke chapter two. And one of the things that I find fascinating about Luke chapter two is that Luke chapter two is the, the big event that Luke chapter one was leading us into. There were these songs that people were singing that were leading us into Luke chapter two. But 700 years before all of this, we have something in the book of Micah, Micah chapter five, verse two, that I want us to take a look at because Micah chapter five, verse two is this prophecy that we are now seeing come to fulfillment in Luke chapter two. So this is pretty exciting stuff. So Micah chapter five, verse two, uh, if you open your Bibles to Micah chapter five, um, we're gonna find something pretty awesome here. But Micah chapter five, verse two, if you don't know where the book of Micah is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. You just go ahead and use it. Micah chapter five, verse two. And here's what it says. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And so what we're hearing here is that there is this ruler, this this is a, a messianic prophecy, so the Messiah is gonna come from Bethlehem, and you need to start asking the question, is God, or has God, did God orchestrate things so that Messiah will come out of Bethlehem? It's pretty exciting stuff. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here, and I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word and, and walking through and seeing the history that's there, Lord, that we would be a people who have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you today. In your name I pray, amen. So this opening passage that I wanted us to look at, like I said, it's a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy that talks about the coming of Messiah, and we understand Messiah to be Jesus. And, and, and so it's, it's a pretty exciting thing. And then we, we turn, of course, now over to Luke chapter two. So you can get there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 2, and we need to remember that as we read and as we study the gospel of Luke, that his primary focus was to create an orderly account so that the recipients could have certainty in what they were taught. And you catch that? It's an orderly account so that the recipient, in this case Theophilus and us as well, could have an orderly account and certainty of what we were taught. Now, many of us have been taught the Christmas story over time. You know, we, we've either seen it on TV, they create the cartoons, maybe some of you caught it in Sunday school, maybe you caught it in, in, in you know, any kind of primetime television, that sort of idea, or you know, a Christmas story that maybe you have heard somewhere along the line. Um, it's all based on a factual account of the birth of Jesus. And so when we look in Luke chapter two, there's some clues here that are important for us to remember. Now, Luke, what he does for us in Luke chapter two, he gives us what you would call time codes. So a time code in ancient uh, writing would be uh, the name of an emperor, the name of uh, a governor, or these sorts of things, perhaps the festival that's taking place, all that kind of stuff. These would be time codes, and they give you indication as to when these things were taking place. And so Luke does this for us, and, and so what we're gonna do with Luke chapter two today is this. We're gonna take a look at Luke chapter two uh, so that we understand the timing of the context and, and, and how God brought things about. And then later on at Christmas, we're gonna dive a little bit more into the meaning and the significance 
of this Christmas story. But bear in mind though, that when this initially happened, there was no such thing as Christmas. This wasn't a Christmas story. This was a birth story. This was the coming of Messiah. And, and so then we treat it differently uh, than, you know, some of the trappings that we have as it relates to Christmas. So if you look at Luke chapter two, uh, and we're going to be starting with verse 1. There's, uh, there's this world that Jesus is born into. And in this world that he's born into, what we find is that a decree from Rome reaches the entire Mediterranean world. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, this is a critically important thing. It says, like, it came to pass in those days. And so Luke is clearly telling us that this is a recording of actual history. It's real events. This is not a once upon a time story. These are not fanciful stories of Zeus or Apollo on Mount Olympus. This is real. And so because it's real, we're able to look back at the historical record and say, okay, when were these things taking place? So a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. The story of Jesus' birth began during the reign of one of the most remarkable men in ancient history. He was born with the name Octavian. And that's not a name that we normally give our kids today, but he was born with the name Octavian. He was named after his father. And as a matter of fact, his grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar. So here's this guy, Octavian, who was in the line of, of somebody else who was quite an incredible person, Julius Caesar. Octavian came to the attention of his great uncle. Julius Caesar eventually adopted Octavian as his son, and he was made his official heir in 45 BC. Within a year, Caesar was murdered, and Octavian joined with two others, a guy by the name of Mark Antony, maybe you've heard that name before, and Lepidus in splitting up the domination of Rome in three ways. Now you have to remember this, this is critical, okay? Rome was not an empire at this point. Rome was a republic. And so in this republic, what you had was Julius Caesar, who was the leader of the republic. After he is murdered, then you see the republic divided into three, and the people who killed him moved on into other areas of Rome who were then later on chased down and, and, and their lives were taken. So you had Octavian, Mark Anthony, and a guy by the name of Lepidus who split up Rome in three ways. And for decades, the Mediterranean world was filled with wars and violence. And so now under this triumvirate, it became worse. You would think it would become better, but it actually becomes worse because they're all rivals of each other. There were years of bloody, brutal fighting for power and money in Rome and the provinces. So now, eventually what happened was Octavian and Antony, Mark Antony, uh, they pushed Lepidus out of the picture eventually, and they just kind of over, overwhelmed him with their own military might. And even though his sister married Antony, for 13 years, Octavian and Antony existed as rivals until around 31 BC. For a year, their huge armies assembled and positioned themselves against each other. And Mark Antony at this point had a relationship with somebody who's also a well-known historical figure by the name of Cleopatra, who was queen of Egypt. So Cleopatra comes to the aid of Mark Antony and they set up with each other against Octavian. They, they had more warships and they had more uh, infantry. 
But Octavian had a better strategy. And so with these combined forces of Antony and Cleopatra of Egypt, you against Octavian, you had what was called the Battle of Actium. And, and Actium was this coastal uh, peninsula that, uh, that was kind of a gateway into the Mediterranean, or that part of the Mediterranean anyway. And, and so then you had this standoff between these two incredibly large military forces. Octavian was a, had defeated Antony and Cleopatra, and he was now the sole ruler of the Roman Republic. And it says here, as we continue reading in the scriptures, uh, that all the world, right? So it says here, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So of the entire Roman world. And for decades, the world of Augustus lived in, and Jesus was born into, was a world of the Mediterranean basin, and it was wrecked by war and destruction and brutality and immorality. And so this decree goes out from Caesar Augustus, and it seems that the authority of this man changed the chaos of the time in a dramatic way. He brought three things that turned the tide miraculously, and this is why this is important, because this leads to a very famous time period within Roman history. It's about a 200-year window of history that it leads into called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. And so Octavian brings in peace because he defeated his rivals. So you don't have the internal wars anymore. Second, he brought in political and administrative skill. Some would even say brilliance in terms of how we governed. And then third, he brought in vast sums of money from Egypt to be able to pay the soldiers and then, of course, help the Roman economy. The eternal internal peace and order which Augustus achieved endured with the occasional interruptions for about two centuries. Never had all the, northern, had all the shores of the Mediterranean been under one rule and never had they enjoyed such prosperity, which is the Pax Romana. Now, I've mentioned his name as, as Augustus a couple of times. And here's, here's why, like as, as great a man as Caesar was, Caesar Augustus or Octavian, he was only a man and the man who brought the answers to the Senate, to the people, also demanded a large price be paid for his leadership. He demanded absolute power over the Roman Empire, which made him, uh, moved him from being the leader of the Republic to the emp emperor of the empire. In 27 BC, he arranged for the Roman Senate to give him this incredible title, and the title is Augustus. So often we refer to a Caesar Augustus as Augustus kind of being his name, but it wasn't. Augustus is actually a title, and Augustus means exalted or sacred, meaning godlike. Um, and, and so to some extent, there's this belief that Caesar was essentially a god. And so Rome was no longer a republic governed by laws. It was an empire governed by an emperor. The first emperor of Rome was this same Caesar Augustus. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. This guy takes this tumultuous time of immorality, battles and wars, and he issues in this peace. And it's in this peace that he lays the groundwork for other things to be able to get maneuvered and happen. For example, part of his, his leading was that he had regional governors. And so he had a governor over the Roman 
administrative region near Galilee. It says here the census first took place while Quinus, or Quir, um, this is a hard name to say, uh, Quir, Quirinius was governing C, uh, Syria. So the census was a registration of people. And you would think that uh, it would be similar to the kind of census that we have nowadays, but it is quite a bit different actually. The purpose of the census was a taxation policy. And so the more people that were able to be recorded, the more funds were able to be extracted, and so then that profited the Roman Empire. So it was a, tax, it was a, it was a, a way to efficiently tax people within the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, there's a gentleman by the name of Justin Martyr who lived in like mid-2nd century, so you're talking about like, like 150 AD, and he said that in his own day, you could look up the record of the same census that Luke mentioned. Now, Luke mentions, here's the theory, there's those who would believe that Luke mentions two census. One here in Luke chapter two, but then also in Acts chapter five, there's a census that's indicated there. Now the Luke chapter five census, or sorry, the um, Acts chapter five census, uh, it's really famous because there was these giant riots and revolts that were taking place. And as a matter of fact, in, Luke, in Acts chapter five, they record the idea that there was this guy by the name of Judas, not Judas Iscariot or Jesus' brother, but a guy by the name of Judas who rose up, led people in a riot and a revolt and was ultimately executed. And so it, they even say, look, he rose up and then now he is no more and his followers are scattered. And so there's this idea that there are two census that were recorded. That's one possibility of trying to figure things out here in terms of when things were taking place. Because there seems to be some discrepancy as to this Quirinius, uh, his governorship wasn't recorded until like 6 AD. Herod was, or yeah, he was only around until like 4 AD. And so there's supposed to be this overlap between the two and trying to figure out how this happened. So there are those who, who try to suggest that there were two census that would take place. Another option, though, is that if you look at the original Greek, uh, there's a word in there that if you translate it slightly differently, because it is used in a couple of ways, that you get a different sense of what's taking place. So in his book, Who Was Jesus? The former Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright states this, and I don't agree with everything N.T. Wright says, but I will tell you that this particular um, perspective is something that I find compelling. Now, I don't know if it's actually true, but I find it compelling. Uh, he says that uh, the question of Quirinius and his census is an old chestnut, he says. This is a British guy. Uh, requiring a good knowledge of the Greek. It depends on the meaning of the word protos, which usually means first, right? So we've got, um, yeah, the term protos typically means first. Most translations of Luke chapter 2, verse 2 read, this was the first protos census when Quirinius was governor over Syria. But in the Greek of the time, as, a standard, as the standard major Greek lexicons point out, the word protos came sometimes to be used to mean before. So when followed, as in this case, by what's called the genitive case, uh, the genitive case is a grammatical feature in Greek. Now, I, I get this, this is probably gonna lose interest a little bit, but just hang with me for a moment. It's the genitus, genitive case in the grammatical feature in Greek. Uh, it's often used to indicate a possession, right? So as in Jesus's disciples, right? So that's the genitive case, the disciples are of Jesus. 
uh, also or talking about of origin, right? So uh, as in Jesus of Nazareth, so it's the genitive case. So right is pointing out that there's a special use of the genitive when it follows the word protos, and protos ends up meaning before. So he writes it like this, he says, a good example would be John 1.15, when John the Baptist says of Jesus, he was before me, he was protos me, with the Greek being again protos followed by the genitive of me. And so we have this idea that it could be translated as, um, if we were to read it with the term before in it, it says, this was the census before Quinius was governor over Syria. So that's one option. And so you need to know that there is this uh, conversation that's taking place in the scholarly world to try and figure out the dating of this particular census because it's tripped some people up uh, within the Christian world and within the non-Christian world. And so it's important that we, that we look at that. We see here that, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And so the idea of everybody going to their own city, it was an impressive thought. Like one man in some ivory palace of Rome gave a command and the whole world responded. And it may be that up to that point, there'd never been a man with power over more lives than Caesar Augustus. Like this was the largest empire that the world had ever seen. But Augustus wasn't as powerful as he thought. Like he sat in his palace, he made his decree, and he thought that it was the supreme exercise of his will, the ultimate flexing of his muscle, you could say. But he was just a tool in God's hand. God had promised that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Remember, we read Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And that promise would be fulfilled. Because if you remember from last week, with God, a promise made is a promise fulfilled. So how does one get a young couple from Nazareth who are pregnant down to Bethlehem where they might not be inclined to travel? Well, simple. You work through the secular savior of the world and use him as a pawn in your own plan. Like, think about this for a moment. Like, God orchestrates events so that Rome has to come under this leadership who then is going to put out this census that's going to cause everyone to have to go back to their uh, city of heritage. And then in doing so, Joseph and Mary end up going off to Bethlehem where Jesus is going to be born. Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Everyone to his own city. Augustus was known to be very sensitive to the nationalistic feelings of his subjects, and so he commanded them to return to their cities uh, of the family of origin for that census. This is all still part of the orchestration. You see, God was silent for 400 years until he spoke uh, through Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, to Elizabeth, to Mary, uh, to Zechariah. Elizabeth, Mary, and Zechariah all prophesy. And so then you have that taking place, which is remarkable, but you also have the God of what's called Kronos, or uh, that's the secular version of it. Kairos is another version of it. Uh, and so you have the God of time who weaves his will within time to orchestrate the events that he desires to see happen. This is incredible. This is encouraging. This is, this is the God who's not just created the world, set it on autopilot, and let it run. This is the God who is intimately involved in his creation. 
And so then he brings you to verse 4 to 7, where we have the birth of Jesus, where Joseph and Mary come to Bethlehem, where Jesus is born. So it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee. And the trip from Nazareth to Galilee, just outside Jerusalem, is about 80 miles. It was not a short distance in those days. You've got to remember, they didn't have vehicles. It was significant undertaking, costing time and money. And so Joseph goes up from Galilee and says, with, his, with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so we often think Mary was close to delivery when they made this journey, but we actually don't know that at all. That's what the comics show us. That's what the coloring pages show us. That's even sometimes what the cartoons show us. But it may not actually be the case because we're not, in the, we're not told how long they were going to be in Bethlehem. We don't, we don't learn that information. So we often think that, the, that she was close to delivery when they made the journey. Um, but that may not have been the case. Joseph may have been anxious to get her out of Nazareth to avoid the pressure of a scandal. Because you've got to remember that if she starts showing she's there and she's his betrothed, there's this idea that, that there's still the chance that the public would view her as an adulteress and try to take her life. And so there's all kinds of things that could be happening potentially in the background here. And so Luke tells us that it was while they were in Bethlehem, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So according to Roman law, Mary didn't have to go with Joseph for the tax census, but it made sense for her to go with him, especially because she was in these stages of pregnancy. And so surely the subject was much gossip potentially in Nazareth at the time. And it says, and she brought forth her firstborn son. Now, one of the striking things about Luke's narrative is how simple it contrasts how, with how great the events actually are. Like, it's like Luke is just telling this story that seems so simple, and yet what's taking place is monumentous. In our modern age, small events are often inflated with over-description and presented as more important than they really are. We have an expression for that. We call it, you know, making a mountain out of a molehill. And yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke presents this most amazing event in a really understated manner. There's a humility in it. And that's neat. I mean, you know, the idea that, like, it, it, even in the telling of the birth of Jesus and the events surrounding it, there is this notion that, that Jesus walks into our experience with humility and, and a servant heart, a lowliness, you could say. So this idea of humility is just part of Jesus' experience and certainly something that we need to model. So you might ask yourself then, okay, so when did this happen? If Luke is creating this orderly account so that we can have certainty in what we have been taught, then when was Jesus born, right? Because we celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th. That's when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And though it's important for us to understand that the date of December 25th is improbable, but not impossible. Like it's not likely that he was born on December the 25th, but it was the first popularized date in the church during the fourth century, right? In the 300s. So here's where we start getting a little bit more technical, and you can do your own research on this because it's actually a really fun project. But the month of Jesus' birth is most likely to be around the time of Tishri, which is uh, September, October. And though this date 
is also, it's our best estimation based on the details provided. And so it's not a guarantee, but it's, it's kind of our best estimation based on some of the details within the narrative. So to arrive at this date, here's what we do. We start at the conception of John the Baptist, which is in Sivan, uh, in the Jewish, the Jewish month of Sivan, which is June. Now, the order of Abijah was the eighth priestly course in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 6 to 19, that served in the temple during the 10th week of the priestly cycle. Okay, so Abijah is the lineage of Zechariah. Zechariah had to serve in the temple because they were divided in 24 divisions. And, and so Zechariah's division was in the order of Abijah. And so according to this, they were in the, served in the temple during the 10th week of the priestly cycle. To start the 10th week, uh, the start of the 10th week coincided with the second Sabbath of the month of Sivan which runs approximately from mid-May to mid-June. Soon after Zechariah returned from his priestly duties, Elizabeth became pregnant with John the Baptist. Okay, so when you figure mid-June, you go forward six months to the arrival at Gabriel's announcement of the conception of Jesus with his Kislev, which is December. And then you count forward, you, ready? you count forward nine more months and the time that takes place of human pregnancy to reach Tishri, which is September, when Jesus was born. Now that's a lot of information. You go ahead and rewind this, and you check that out again, but do the research on this because this is a fun study. But you may ask yourself, like, why would this be important? Like, why does it matter that he was born in Tishri? Why is it, what's the significance of that? Leviticus chapter 23, verse 23 to 27. Like, listen to this, okay? Now remember, Tishri is the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, the 10th day of this seventh month, listen, is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Like, think about this. If this is the actual birth month of Jesus, this is the month of the Day of Atonement. It points to His purpose in coming. Like, this is incredible. Even His birth points to His purpose. John chapter 1 verse, uh, sorry, 1 John chapter 2 verse 2, he says this, talking about Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And, and so it's important for us to recognize then what atonement does. Atonement is an old Anglo-Saxon word. It's not commonly used today in, our, in terms of the way we communicate, um, except when we refer to the work of Jesus. And His work of atonement enables human beings to be reconciled to God, forgiven, and made righteous in God's sight. That's what the atonement is. You, you see, we need to understand that God doesn't overlook sin. God doesn't see sin and say, oh, it's no big deal, everybody does it. No, like, sin is a huge deal to God. And so you have this act of atonement from Jesus where He takes on our guilt. He takes on the penalty of sin on our behalf. 
And not only did Jesus pay the debt of our sin on our behalf, but he also shares with us his righteousness. And so it's this incredible swap where Jesus takes our sins away and in replacement, he places his righteousness. And so then the father looks at us through the righteousness of the son. That's an incredible thing. That's what atonement does. And so the key point of the work of Jesus involved him taking our place. He accepted the punishment of our sin, bringing us this pardon and righteousness and reconciliation with God. And we then have the righteousness of Christ. Paul captures the essence of the atoning work of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and I'll end with this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you might be looking at this and say, Rob, this is a little different than how we normally look at Luke chapter 2 because this is the Christmas story. But here's what I need you to understand. Like 700 years ago in the book of Micah, God's prophet Micah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And then what we find is God orchestrating the events of secular society to create the environment in which it's going to require Joseph and Mary to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, where Jesus is ultimately born. God, this is an incredible story of God's hand at work within his creation. And then what we get out of this is this language of the atoning work of Jesus, because that's the point. He's born potentially, most likely, in Tishri, which is the month of the Day of Atonement. And again, even his birth points to his purpose. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you're here checking this out, and you're thinking of yourself, man, I just got nothing. Uh, God can't look at me. God can't have anything to do with me. He's just going to be angry with me. He's going to be unforgiving. He doesn't want me. He doesn't love me. Nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, God's love for us was so strong that while, like Romans tells us, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Like while we were enemies of God, he dies for us. And then what he does for us in the process is that the sin that we then have in our life, you know, that's the stuff that we're looking at and we're saying, God can't have anything to do with me. God says, forget that. I'm taking that off of you. That's going on my son. Jesus takes that sin on us, from us on himself. And then what we get in return is Christ's righteousness applied to us. God looks at us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, hear me. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God looks at you through the lens of his son. You are righteous in his eyes. And my encouragement to you would be this. If you're feeling far from God, come to him because he is that father with his arms open wide waiting for you to show up at home. If you are questioning him, ask questions. He's big enough for your questions, but then come and talk to people who can help you wrestle through some of those questions. Whatever it is that is your hurdle in coming to Jesus, just know that he didn't put it there. He is not interested in things that are going to prevent you from coming to him. He says, count the cost before coming, becoming one of his disciples, right? He calls us to a high bar, but he doesn't want anyone to be without him. That's the kind of God we have. And he orchestrates events within history to bring about his purposes, his promise of the Messiah, his promise of the lasting atonement. 
And remember, with God, a promise made is a promise fulfilled. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that whatever hurdles we have in coming to you, Lord, that you would expose that to us so that we are able to overcome these things and come to you. Lord, that we would rest these things at your feet and truly just accept your free gift of salvation, that you would take our sin and replace it with your righteousness. Lord, that we would be a people who are thankful and who are committed to your purposes. In your name I pray. Amen.